you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to Joshua chapter 7. We're journeying through the book of Joshua, and I want to invite you to turn there along with me. We're going to take these two chapters in Joshua 7 and 8, <clears throat> excuse me, this morning. Uh, does anybody, I'm not talking about migraine level headache, I'm talking about like a, a lower level. Does anybody get completely thrown off by a headache? Anybody with me on that? Like, like your head starts hurting, you're like, oh man, forget it, I'm going to bed. It's only 2 p.m., I know, but I'm going to bed. Like that kind of thing. Or maybe a particular joint or something starts hurting and the whole rest of your day is thrown off. Anybody on that, with me on that? Um, you know, there's a reason why, because if one thing's not functioning well, the rest of it kind of gets thrown off, right? You can have, this is, this is part of how the body works, is you can have pain in one location or a failure, if you will, in one location, and a whole lot uh, else gets messed up. We've had some experiences in hospitals over the past couple of years. Um, we know uh, that, for instance, and some of you know too, personally, from experience, you've got the scars to prove it, that, that when your heart doesn't work correctly, there's a whole lot that can go wrong. Kidneys, liver, all these kinds of things. I mean, things you can see, things you can't see. That, like you could have a, a, a failure, if you will, a problem in one particular place, and, and the rest of it go wrong systemically, right? Uh, how many of you are computer folks in here? Computer, yeah. Okay, so Mike's over here. Mike's a computer coder. Um, he writes in languages that none of us speak and understand, right? Uh, and so it, if, if you're putting together a program and, and you have one particular line or one particular function of a, of a larger function uh, where you know, you're supposed to have an X and you put a Y or whatever, what happens to the rest of the code? It's all bad, right? It's all bad. That single point failure, if you will, creates havoc in the rest of it. There, there is a, a single place where this has gone wrong, but yet all of this is affected. And just to personalize it now, you know, in, in computer world, it may not be Mike's fault. I mean, it, it may be that somebody else wrote that code. It's never Mike's fault, right? It may be that somebody else wrote that code stuck it in the middle of that, but yet because it's not functioning, this one guy is costing the team, uh, you know, success, or maybe even costing the company the contract. This single thing has this much larger implication. Uh, Excuse me. This one thing can can create, if you will, a systemic mess. And the question comes along with that. Is it fair that that's the way it is? It is what it is. I mean, we can't, we're not going to combat that. So we're all, the whole thing is connected. That's the main point here, is that we're all connected. Biblically, the Bible talks about this, and we'll see this here in just a second. We're also connected. So that what affects one affects more than one. Whatever affects one affects more than one. We're we're way more connected than the world wants us to believe. The world wants us to believe it's my business, you need to stay out of it. It's my body, you need to stay out of it. Uh, You know, it's it's my property, you need to stay out of it. Um, You know, the the connection that the world wants us to believe is online, right? We've got 694 friends on Facebook that we don't ever see. All we see is pictures of their kids, the ones that they choose to post, right? They don't... Okay, that's enough. Uh, So we're more connected in reality than the world wants us um, to believe. And that's a real positive in a lot of ways because uh, we can and do take care of each other when the need arises. I mean, we have this sense of connection when, um, 
whenever something comes up, because we're connected, we can see that and then step into the situation and serve in some way. Whenever a situation arises, we can see that and and speak into it in a way um, that's helpful and good, right? Because we're all connected in this. Excuse me. We can and we do take care of each other. It's July 4th tomorrow, firecrackers and hot dogs and all that good stuff. Uh, some people come and, and um, to, a, to a Sunday like this, and this is what they want. They want a you know, patriotic sermon. Here's the best sermon that I can preach on July 4th. Why? Because what we, what collectively we as a country need is singular, and that is for the church to be the church. That is absolutely the best thing that could happen to the church, I mean to the country. Like if, because the whole thing is connected... If, if we get to be the church, not just you and not just me, but we, just we right here, if we could be the church, that would be good. If the church overall could be the church, that would be even better. And it would have effects. It would have effects that would go outward and, and do something incredible um, for our country. That's, so, that's what we need to do. In order for the church to be the church, we've got to stand up and preach the Bible. That's what we're going to do. Joshua chapter 7. There's two principles I want to highlight today out of these two chapters, and then we'll celebrate communion together. Start in verse 1. But the people, we're going to read the first 12 verses here. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. You'll remember that the devoted things uh, were the things that God had set aside for destruction because they were tied to the wickedness of the people of Jericho. Uh, but the people of Israel broke, broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, because Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. He took them. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Achan took them, but the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Verse 2, Joshua sent men from Jericho up to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel. And said to them, go and spy out the land. The men went up, spied out Ai, verse 3, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, don't have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Don't make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. It's just an outpost, if you will. Verse 4, so about 3,000 men went up from there, uh, from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. Now just one chapter earlier, we had Jericho, walls came tumbling down, except they actually fell flat under the power of God, and they defeated the whole thing, right? So big, monstrous, fortified city. Now you've got this little bitty podunk town, and guess what? The Israelites are running, not into the place, but away from it, because they're being uh, destroyed. Verse 5, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So what do you do if you're the leader? Joshua, verse 6, tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. That's a sign of repentance. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say um, when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and will surround us and cut off your name from the earth. What will you do for your great name? Verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. I love that. Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Verse 11, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded him. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. 
Here's the first principle, and that is this. Some people have individual responsibility and some kind of that approach to life. Some people approach life with this corporate accountability. We learn from this story, it's actually both. There's not a slash, there's not an or, there's not an either. It's both, it's and. It is individual, individual responsibility and corporate accountability before God. Achan was guilty, but Israel was accountable. Who was it that he said in verse 1? Who broke faith? Israel did. That's what he says. Israel broke faith. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. The whole thing. Then look at verse 10. Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have... Why? Why the plural? They have transgressed my covenant. I've commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen in line and put them among their own people. Achan was guilty, but Israel was accountable. Excuse me. Um, this is, this is, I mean, you, you can think of historical examples of where this is true. Uh, World War II comes to an end. Adolf Hitler done what he did in his bunker, um, right? And so he was guilty. He, and the people underneath him who were all responsible for all the things went through the war trials there at Nuremberg and all that kind of stuff. And they were all guilty. But the entire country of Germany was also responsible. And so the, the reparations that had to be paid and the, and the penalties and things that were put in place and the, the borders, if you will, that were put in place, fences, if you will, that were put in place to make sure this kind of craziness doesn't happen again. All of that affected the entire people. So you've got individual responsibility and corporate accountability. This is true spiritually for us. This is true in our family. This is true in our work. And this, if you will, is the negative side of us. I mean, there's a lot of positive to us, isn't there? I mean, you get to serve one another and encourage one another and pray for one another, bless one another, all these kinds of things. That's a lot of good stuff that that revolves around the word us. In this case, when we're talking about sin, this is the negative side of us because your individual sin has corporate uh, ramifications. Your individual sin has corporate ramifications. This is what uh, what we learned from Achan's story here. Why? Why is this the case? And I think this is why. Because God isn't just dwelling in me. He's not just dwelling in me. He's also dwelling in us. What we talk about is the, um, when a person becomes a believer in Jesus, that they're washed from their um, sins, cleansed from their sins, made as white as snow. We're going to come to communion in a little bit and celebrate that. But part of it also is that the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in me individually. As I individually respond to God, He also uh, takes up residence in me individually. But that's not all. Because it's not just me that the Spirit is dwelling in. He's also dwelling in us. He's also dwelling in us. Look look back quickly at verse 8, and then I want to turn to the New Testament and see this. Uh, Oh Lord, Joshua says, Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut your name off from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Joshua has this argument with God and it's a good argument. God, you've you've brought us out of Egypt and you've set your name. You've, You've declared your glory, not just in me as an individual, but in us as a people. And so because you've done this in us as a people, if we all get wiped out, then what will you do for your name? You're not just indwelling me, you're also indwelling us. That's true for us as a church family too. Uh, If you will, in Ephesians chapter 2, you can turn all the way to the right. 
not all the way, almost all the way to the right, but in Ephesians chapter 2, this is at the end of a passage where Paul is talking about how God takes individual people and makes them into one new body, one new person. In, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So you're a brick, you're a brick, you're a brick, you're a brick, you're a brick. What's God doing with us individually? He's taking us brick by brick and he's building something. What's he building? He's building a temple that he can dwell in. That's what he's doing. God doesn't just indwell me. He indwells us. And that's an important thing to hold on to. That's an important thing to hold on to. It is the why, if you will, as well as the how that we are connected to one another. In, in this story, we see both an individual responsibility and a corporate accountability. That's principle number one. The second principle, uh, it turns the corner a little bit, it gets a little heavy here, but uh, it, the second principle is the seriousness of sin. God is incredibly serious about this. Let's identify what the sin is first. So what happens um, in the kind of middle of Joshua chapter 7 there, the Lord speaks to Joshua. He's like, hey, listen, uh, gather all the people tomorrow. We're going to cast lots. I'm going to identify. I'm going to reveal for you the person who sinned. So they gathered all the people. They cast lots. The lot fell to Judah. They gathered the heads of the households of Judah. The lot fell to, uh, gr- to grandpa there, and they get, got down, got down, got down until it was identified as Achan. And then look at verse 19. Then Joshua said, to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Verse 20, and Achan answered Joshua and said, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. See, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent and the silver underneath. Achan's sin was a serious sin. What was it? It was coveting. Now, if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, that fits on that list right there. Do not covet. I mean, that, that shows up in the list. So Achan specifically broke, if you will, one of the big ten, one of the ten that, that Moses had, had, had declared to the people, one of the ten that all the rest of the stuff is based on. Achan had broken this. And watch how he did it. And it's, it's incredibly self-aware and diagnostic for you and for me. Verse 21, when I saw... When I saw among the spoil this cloak and this silver and this gold, then I coveted them or desired them, and then I took them. Saw them, desired them, took them. Saw them, desired them, took them. Saw them, desired them, took them. How many people have made an absolute wreck of their life saw something, and they desired something, and they took something. Let's just hearken back, if you will, a few chapters, not a few chapters, a few books earlier to Genesis chapter 3. Eve is in the Garden of Eden. Serpent comes along, has a little conversation with her, and you know what the Bible says? She saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eyes. 
And her desire was for it to make one wise. And so what did she do? She took it. She saw it, she desired it, and she took it. Same three words. Saw it, desire it, take it. See it, desire it, take it. Our eyes are a problem, our hearts are a problem, and our actions are a problem. And sin happens on all of those levels. And listen, you can absolutely make a hash out of your life if you see it, desire it, and take it. That's the truth. People think today that living according to their impulses or their desires is the way of freedom. That is an incredible, unbelievable, I mean, it's actually very believable, but it's incredibly destructive lie from the enemy. Living according to your desires is not, is not the way of freedom. It is not the way of freedom. Indeed, it's the way of slavery. If I'm always living according to the impulses, if you will, that I feel of my desires, then I'm a slave to those desires. To live at the whim of your desires is slavery. Only to live according to God's word is freedom. A couple of verses here from John chapter 8. Maybe you recognize this one. If you abide, Jesus is speaking here. If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. You can call yourself whatever you want to, but if you're abiding in my word, truly you're my disciples. Uh, And you will know the truth. And what's going to happen? The truth is going to make this really uh, uh, narrow, religious, pathetic little path that you have to walk on, kind of tiptoe, right? That's how that goes? No, the truth's going to do what? Make you free. The truth is, you will know the truth, and the truth is going to make you free. One more beautiful picture in Psalm 119. I will keep your law continually, forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. Anybody ever been out in a field? I mean, like, like country, you know, like where you got a field out there and you, you can just walk and there's just wide open spaces. I mean, just beautiful, open place. That's what God says following his precepts are like. That's what God says live according to his law is like. Not some confined thing where you're just tied up, straight-jacketed in religion and walking. That's not freedom. That's what happens when you live according to your impulses. Freedom is living according to what God says is best. You want to know where the wide open places are that you get to stroll around and enjoy freedom. It's not in living according to your desires. It's in living according to the truth. Don't become a slave to the desires that you think that you feel inside. Instead, reckon with those desires and live according to the truth. Live how you know to be true. So let's talk about how we combat this. If we see it, we desire it, and we take it. See it, desire it, take it like Achan did. Where's, where's one of the places that you can fight this? You've got to fight it on all three levels, but where's one of the places you can fight it? Be careful what you look at. If seeing it is part of the problem then be careful what you look at. This is true of computers. This is true of magazine racks at HEB. This is true of all of those things. Be careful what you look at. This is true of other people's photos online that you're like, golly, I wish I could do that, or I wish I had that, or whatever. You see, be careful what you look at. And then it goes to the level of desire. See it. Desire it. When you have these desires that start rolling up inside of you, they start bubbling up inside of you, what's the best thing to do to go, oh, I don't really desire that? No, that's not the best thing to do. Say it. Say it out loud. Hey, God, in a conversation with God, God, right now what's boiling in my heart is a desire for that, to have that, to look like that, to be a part of that, to to participate in that, whatever it may be. God, that's what's in my heart. But I know this is not right. And so I'm repenting. 
And I'm asking you to help me with that. The best thing you can do as you fight this, if you, if you can avoid seeing it, avoid seeing it. If, if the desire boils up inside of you, you don't even have to see it, but sometimes you do. If the desire boils up inside of you, repent of that desire. Just go ahead and name what it is and then repent. And then lastly, take it. If you're past the point of seeing it, past the point of desire, and it feels like it's overwhelming, and you start to physically take action, one of the best things that you can do is get up and change the environment, whatever that may be. Shut the computer and walk away. Turn the TV off. Stand up and get out of your office. Um, uh, stop the conversation. What, put your phone down. Whatever it may be, stand up and walk away. Change the environment. Change the environment. See it, desire it, take it. Folks, there, there are stories, stories in the room right now and, and in the lives of people that we're connected to of people who've absolutely destroyed their lives, their families, whatever, because see it, desire it, take it, took over their lives, like with Achan. Achan's sin was coveting. And just to be clear, this was never about the silver and gold. We'll see this in just a second. The silver and gold went away with Achan. This is not about God being greedy. This is about them breaking faith and then God saying, no, 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 this is serious sin and so I'm not going to tolerate it. Secondly, sin always has greater effects than you anticipate. Sin always has greater effects than you anticipate. Starting in verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. Behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. They found the stuff and then they set it, not before Joshua, but before the Lord. Verse 24. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said... Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned his burning anger, turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Sin always has greater effects than you anticipate. Um, when it comes to uh, this particular story, Achan's sin, um, the, the toleration of Achan's sin led to defeat. There were people, I mean, the Israelites suffered their first military defeat. Why? Because of Achan's sin. To, to tolerate sin in our lives is defeat. To repent of that sin is actually the path to victory. This is what's going to happen. We'll see it in chapter 8. But to tolerate it now, it's the path, it, is, it, is, <clears throat> excuse me, it is the path to defeat. But repenting of sin is what leads to victory. It always has greater effects than you anticipate. In Achan's case, 36 people lost their lives. 36 people lost their lives because of one man's sin. And not just those 36, but also his family. Joshua brings up all of these people. Stones, fire, all of this horror. Achan's sin cost not only his own life, not only the lives of the 36 soldiers, but also his family, his family as well. And people respond to that in in a couple of ways. Uh, Number one, they they respond like this. Well, I mean, my sin doesn't really affect anyone else. It doesn't really affect anyone else. I mean, it's kind of my thing, you know? We're all connected, folks. And to just give you an example, uh, we've got a roof over our head, right? 
Grateful for that in this moment? Yes. This roof affects more than just me, doesn't it? You over here and you over here, we're all kind of in this together with this roof. Let's say there's, this roof springs a leak and it starts raining outside. Not going to because it's July in Texas, I understand. But let's just pretend that it springs a leak and maybe it le- leaks over here and then all of a sudden it springs a leak over here. Well, now it's this roof is affecting a lot of people, isn't it? In a, in a negative way. In, in, this, in this, well, my sin only affects me. No, that's not true. That's not true. Again, it's true of family, it's true of work, it's true of all of your key relationships. Your sin will negatively and always have effects on other people. It always has greater effects than you anticipate. The other thing people say when they, if they well, it doesn't really affect me. Yes, it does. The other people say, well, I don't, I don't really think it's fair about his family and stuff. I mean, why should a family get hurt because of one man's sin? There are stories in every section of the room this morning. Every section. Where families have been destroyed because of one man's sin. Because of one person, and they stepped out of line with what God's done, and the whole thing blew up. I've got stories in my family about that. You've got stories in your family about that. This is not foreign to us. It's not fair in that sense. But it is reality because our sin always has greater effects than we anticipate. It always has greater effects than we anticipate. That's why it's so serious and why we have to take it so seriously. Lastly, regarding the seriousness of sin, remember this, that death is on the line. Death is on the line. I read this, I bet, 25 times this week in preparation, just trying to get a feel for the story. One of the things that popped up that was crazy to me, um, uh, nobody ever questioned the sentence that God handed down. God said, hey, listen, when this person is identified, this is going to be the consequence. That is, they're going to die. And, And nobody ever questioned that. Joshua never questioned it. The people of Israel never questioned it. Achan never questioned it. The sentence that God handed down was the sentence of death because Sin requires death. Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, and this is what it says. The wages of our sin is what? Not getting a gold star on the Sunday school chart? Not... What is it? It's death. It's not, oh, your life may not go right, or something may not happen. It's death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So death is what's on the line. When when you have an offense um, against an infinitely worthy, infinitely glorious God, then the the wage of that offense has to be death. That's the deal, and that's what Paul says. But the wages of our sin is death. And, And in this case... Somebody had to pay. Somebody had to pay. Look at verse 25. Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire, stoned them with stones. They brought him to the valley of Achor, which means trouble. And Achan was buried there. Achor, Achan. You brought trouble upon us, the Lord's going to bring trouble on you. There had to be a payment of death because of sin. Great news for anybody who's a believer in Jesus. The wages of our sin was death, but what? The free gift of, of, uh, of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There had to be a payment of death for our sin. There was a payment of death for our sin. 
And the trouble didn't fall on me. It fell on Jesus. If you're a believer in here, the trouble didn't fall on you. It fell on Jesus. We're going to come to communion here in just a couple of moments. And guess what? You know what we're going to remember? The trouble didn't fall on us. It fell on Christ. Sin is so serious. God takes it that seriously. When we step into line with him and we take it that seriously, three things happen. Number one, this is all chapter eight. Number one, look at verse eight, uh, chapter eight, verse one. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. The first thing that happens when um, we take our sin as seriously as God does is this. The Lord brings assurance to us. Hey, listen, I know, God, I know that I'm messed up here. God says back, hey, do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Thank you. Thank you for confessing that. Thank you for bringing that forward. Now let me assure you of our relationship. Before we do anything else, before we go and conquer a city, before we head to work on Monday, whatever, let me assure you that our relationship is right. Before any right action happens, let me assure you that right relationship is where we are. So he says to Joshua, don't fear, don't be dismayed. If you're Joshua, hey, listen, we, Jericho went awesome, AI, terrible, and it's because of this sin. God, what am I even doing out here? And God says, don't be dismayed. Don't be afraid. Assurance. Assurance. The second thing that happened is that the Lord can grant victory. He doesn't always change our circumstances. In this particular case, he did. He tells Joshua the battle plan, go out, set an ambush, draw the people out. That's what Joshua did. People rise up. They run after Joshua and, and the people... Um, of Israel like they had before, and there's this whole ambush thing happened, and the Lord grants victory over um, the enemies of God to the people of Israel. That's what happens in the middle of the part of that chapter. And then the last part, so good. Look at verse 30, chapter 8, verse 30. It's a time where we can recalibrate. This is what happens with Joshua. And at that time, verse 30, and at that time Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as is written in the book of the law of Moses, altar of uncut stones upon which no one has wielded an iron tool. Here, here it goes. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. So they set up an altar and they, they burned um, offerings to God and peace offerings to God. Verse 32, and there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. So tablets of stone and the law goes on it. We've heard this before, right? Exodus, God writes them, Moses breaks them, Moses writes them the second time, the Ten Commandments, right? He's putting it on there. Why? Why is he reminding the people of what's going on? Why is he reminding the people of, of those big Ten Commandments that God wants them to live by? Because it's a recalibration of their heart. Hey, Achan messed up. We had this horrible moment. God's granted us victory. By his mercy, he's granted us victory. What's the best response in that moment? To recalibrate our hearts to say, God, we want to be people who follow you and don't follow that other stuff. We want to be people who do things right and don't step out and, and, and find ourselves in slavery to sin again. We want to be people who live as the free people that you've called us to be, not as people who are wrapped up and bound up by all this other stuff. There's a recalibration of our heart. Folks, you and I, we don't have a law to turn back to. We've got Jesus. So when we come to communion here in just a second, this is what you get to do, to recalibrate your heart. Not around some law that you have to go perform, not around some sacrifice that you have to make, but instead around the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us, around the law that he has fulfilled for us.
That's what, we'll, that's what we will come to. I'm going to pray in just a second. Give everybody a moment to reflect. And then we'll celebrate communion together. Let's settle in, put your stuff away, whatever you need to do to be ready to celebrate communion. I'm going to ask the deacons who are going to serve us to come forward.